When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! <laughs> what would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. <laughs> be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. So you want to be a rock and roll star? No? Well, how about a podcast star? Well, as it turns out, there's a new all-in-one platform just for you. It's called Anchor, and it's the easiest way to make a podcast. And check this out. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify and Apple Podcast and, you know, everywhere else in, uh, in podcast land. And what's even better, you can actually make money from your podcast. Go figure. Uh, no minimum listenership on that. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So go ahead. Download the free Anchor app right now or go to anchor.fm to get started. So what are you waiting for? Podcast stardom is within your reach. The music world moves fast. Want to stay up to date on the latest albums and get in-depth examinations with the artists? Check out Consequence of Sound, the podcast. Bite-sized album reviews for the music fan on the go who wants to stay in the know and much more. Subscribe to the series on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider and let the writers of Consequence of Sound steer you right. Check it out at consequenceofsound.net slash podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. Hey, welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with... It's an audio interview series presented by WFPK Independent Louisville at WFPK.org. Consequence of Sound and the Consequence Podcast Network. If you're not already a subscriber to the series, I hope before we get into this that you hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening from right now. And you can do that wherever you get your favorite podcasts from, including iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Of course, you can also subscribe on YouTube and Spotify as well. I'm Kyle Merritt, and today we are going to take an epic journey with Colin Newman of WIRE. It's the 40th anniversary of Wire's album called 154, the 30th of an album we call Ibtaba, which stands for It's Beginning To and Back Again. We'll also talk about his other bands, Immersion and Get Head, and their records that hit big round numbers. And we get a big update on what to expect from Wire when we can get a new Wire album. Yes, it's in the works. It's a 40-year journey with one of the most important bands of all time, and I'm not painting that too big, I promise you. It's Kyle Meredith with Colin Newman of Wire. So we're talking about some anniversaries here. We're going to go on a big, uh, big old quest, a, uh, a 50 years quest. <laughs> Not quite 50, but still. Oh, 40 years quest. That's actually right. I, I looked at my math wrong there for a second. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's, not, uh, it's not the White Album and uh, <laughs> be Abbey Road by now. It's 50 years. Yeah. I've done something I've never, ever done 
for an interview before is I actually read the relevant <laughs> chapter in Wilson's book and the special edition text uh, on 154 because um, I think it's really important to have some kind of historical context. And I'll give you the reason why. Because um, over the last year or so, um, I've kind of really got seriously into the Beatles again. Um, and I've got, because of the remixed versions that Giles Martin did, which are just, I mean, suddenly they sound like I remember them sounding as opposed to like a bit horrible. <laughs> and I've kind of been do doing quite a lot of reading on them. And I find that there's just too much, too many people giving their opinions, main, main, most of which aren't relevant to anything apart from themselves, the writers. And uh, I think that sort of accuracy in reporting and, um, I, I mean, people who are actually, you know, part of the action, of course, can give opinions, but there's just too much stuff. And, I, and so I'm just I'm doing it through that kind of lens of like, OK, this is a historical piece. Other things have been written about it. I've gone on record of saying various things in the past, but maybe I'm looking at that without uh, thinking more about the effect of the records on the listeners. So uh, let's see how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> I love after all of that setup. It's well. Let's see how this goes. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that it, the thing is, is that you tend to, with all of these things, you give the answers that you always give. You know, one five four was a famously difficult record to make. If Tabor was a very, it was at the end of a very strange chain of events. They're both records which are flawed in some way, from one way of looking at it. Maybe others find them perfect. So I think it's kind of worthwhile giving the time to try and give some special thought. But give me some questions and then you find out whether I've got anything interesting to say or not. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's, it's, I'll take a broad version before we dive right into one of the albums, before we start with 154, because it's interesting the way you painted both of these uh, albums, that they have a similarity in, in that way. They both did follow something else that um you know was was notable for other reasons you, you know your second album's looked at one as one they're of your both third their third album in a cycle right right exactly you know and 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 because of that i mean even the albums that they follow you know, it seems to be, I mean, A Chair's Missing is looked at as one of the all-time greatest albums, you know, period. And and, and I've heard you say many times well, it was... A, that's a fairly recent development. It certainly was 20 years ago. Nobody would have said that. Oh. Something which is it's a development of a, of a critique. It's, uh, to put it in Beatles terms, it's the kind of revolver. It's the one that was never the one that everybody talked about, but suddenly it became everybody's favourite because they realised in hindsight nobody was paying attention at the time, not in, in the right way. So, yeah, Chairs Missing is, in some ways, the... I think in terms of the atmosphere of how the record was made, it was almost kind of perfect. I'm not saying that the music is perfect, but, but the way that it came after Pink Flag. Pink Flag was a, pretty much a statement about where Wire was in September 1977. It wasn't really a statement about much more in many ways. Was That was where we got to, and we hadn't been doing going very long to get there. So unlike other bands who have problems with the second album because they've been playing their first album on the year for, on the road for three years, you know we haven't been playing that material. Some of it was actually pretty new, but by it was released in the December of '77. By January '78, we were already playing a set that was three quarters, not including stuff from uh, Pink Flag. In other words, we were playing barely none of it live, and we'd already moved on from it. With, with Chairs Missing, it seemed like we hit a kind of maturity. We hit an understanding of who we were, and we did it as a band. It was very much, 
you know, it was very much a joint venture. We'd, we all grew, we'd all grown together, including Mike. And then 154, of course, was, was made with the hindsight of having done Chairs Missing of knowing that we could do it. We could do something really interesting, but then being ambitious for more. But everybody's ambitions, ambition taking a different form, which is, you know, could be, not always, but could be a recipe for disaster. So that, that was, those, were the, those were the kind of context with it. And, and 154 had a more difficult start because Chairs Missing came, it had only been, we'd only been rising there had been nothing that would send us backwards be- between Pink Flag and Chairs Missing. We were just getting bigger as a band. We were playing to bigger audiences. We were progressing. And then 154 had the, you know, the very difficult Roxy tour before it that we'd done in the spring or late winter, early spring of that year. And that, that was a very difficult realisation that actually the music industry in, in its format wasn't really accommodating what we were or what we wanted. I mean, we were uniquely mismatched. Who would have, you know, Roxy Music and Wire, you would think that's a great combination. Right. But, you know, Roxy Music from 1972, 73 and Wire from... 79 would have been a great combination but Roxy Music from 79 were a wholly different animal. Their audience didn't like us. It was costing us money to be on the tour. We didn't really seem to be getting very much out of it apart from the fact that it was really hard work. It was, you know... It's you know it's, it's you know in 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 the uh, in the popular saying you know what doesn't kill you you know uh, makes you stronger and I we certainly it certainly did make us stronger but it made us also a bit less interested in doing the thing that we were supposed to be doing which was carrying this forward momentum of this band into a place where you know we would become a group that sold a lot of records and that you know it was never not it wasn't not in our mind that we were never deliberately uncommercial we were always thought that we were on an ascendancy and you know and under the change in the culture of emi i mean we were suddenly in a different place well, we perhaps didn't realise it, but both within the band, uh, with the kind of disillusion or the seeds of disillusion that were set with the Roxy tour and the context around it of what was happening at EMI, it did make it a very difficult start to the record, which wasn't helped by Mike coming in on the first day and saying, you just come from a meeting at EMI. You have to remember that Mike was, he wasn't just the producer. He, was, he also worked for EMI. He was an employee. He was on Double Bubble, which caused some resentment in the band, I must say. And him basically saying he'd come out of a meeting and, you know, the current direction was that, you know, everybody should be making albums of singles. And uh, that just, that wasn't... A, we had the material already, and you can see it on the Rock Palast, that we were already debuting a lot of that material. And B, yeah, singles were always part of Wire's makeup, but it was never exclusively about singles. That just seemed like... I mean, so we just ignored it. Mm. That was not even figuring in our way of thinking about it, but it certainly figured in the way that the record company received it. You know, it's interesting. You you talk about everybody's different ambitions, and I, I can't help but draw the parallel in a way. You know, if we're going to stick with the Beatles for the moment of of the White Album, uh, to kind of uh, wonder if this is if this might be the what your White Album. Yes, yes, no. White Album is actually for many years my favourite Beatles record for all its weirdness. There's, but there's also a bit of Sergeant Pepper's in it, in that we were we were convinced we were going to make an absolutely brilliant record. We, we you know we we had the arrogance. Mm-hmm. We were at that point in our own estimation 
the best band of our generation, but without a doubt. No, I was just, you know, you need a certain amount of arrogance to sure. succeed in, in anything. We felt that people also treated us like that, especially the reception of the album when it came out. So we, we just had that sense that, that, you know, we were on a mission. It's just the, the way that people interpreted that was, was quite different. You know, how if, if, you know, if, we're, if we're it and we're going to make a big artistic statement, that means different things to different people because the thing about the members of WIRE is they're really different people and have very different ideas about what almost anything means. Coming out of the punk scene, whether you meant to or not, uh, you know, for what you became, because obviously you became something quite different than that. But I guess that was sort of the thing that you didn't uh, boast about yourself in a certain way, in a certain type of like, uh, you know, that, that I don't know, because it, it, it did happen. I don't know. It was the way people, as you say, uh, received it. Like when I look back, maybe thanks to what Roxy Music had done a few years before, like the age of alternative had begun, as we see in hindsight, you know, as, as, as what I think of as alternative, that late 70s thing that you were doing. And sounds were still being created. Going into this, you could have influences, but still make something completely new out of it. And I guess that's what I hear. Like, what were you trying to do musically with this, you know, with, with your Sgt. Pepper White album, you know, as, as we keep going well, down that lane? <laughs> the, thing, the thing was, okay, okay, to, 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 to put it that in a bigger con- context, it's certainly, and, and this will seem like a strange thing to say, but, it, but it's, it's very true. Both Graham and I uh, were quite similar in age. He's 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 not even a full year older than me, but we both always had in our idea, in our minds, the idea of making classic records. That there was such a thing as a classic record, and that you know, and the other thing, of course, was that, and that was what we'd learned from the Roxy tour, that it happened just not just for the '60s generation, but also the '70s generation of people you know, getting to a certain point and being absolutely brilliant and then taking the sort of completely commercial being almost an embarrassment to themselves. And we knew that, was, that wasn't for us. We didn't want that. We didn't want that for a while. Why was too important to take that road. You know, we didn't want to let ourselves down, first of all, let alone let anyone else down. So, so it, was, it was, as always, and everything to do with why it's driven by the material. It was the material. It was what we had. The material, we, we'd honed it on the road. We could, as Paul Hardiman, the engineer, said when we turned up on the first day of the session, Guy, you, you, know, you guys can really play now. Uh, that was, should be taken in the context of the fact that uh, when we did Pink Flag, I, his opinion was that we couldn't. <laughs> so, um, you know, I mean, that's, that, that, that was, you know, and we'd had that sort of, we'd had that thing that happened with Chairs Missing where the whole world had opened to a, a world of sound, a world of creativity, a world of of getting down a backing track, but then all of the work was going into the overdubs. That was all the exciting bit, you know. And there were so many possibilities, it seemed. There were, there were new new guitar effects, new ways of working, new ideas. It was new, you know, it was about doing something new. So that the, the ambition, you know, what we shared in ambition was was for, new, for newness and for making something classic. So 
I guess that sort of sums up in a different way what you said. It's it's really impressive for you all to have been the age that you were and, and only that far in your career, you know, only a few years into Wire at this point, and to be so aware of uh, of the sociology of, of how a career can work, you know, in the arc. That's I, I, most people don't, most artists don't really get a grasp of that until much further down the road. That's a, that's a generational thing, also though. Because, I mean, you, you see, you know, Return to the Beatles, but it would have worked with any 60s artist. I mean, you see interviews of the Beatles in 62, 63, even 64, and, and they talk like, you know, apart from the fact that they're being you know, patronised by everybody who's interviewing them. Uh, yeah, this is only going to last so long, you know, and then we're going to get proper jobs as, you know, writing songs for other people or whatever, that, this kind of thing. I mean, that, that notion was gone by our generation that was not some that was not how we were thinking mm-hmm. we were thinking this was something that we were doing we were making a mark and we would continue to do so that was different and we were had had the example of the of the artists from the 60s the artists from the early 70s what they'd done how they'd gone and, and you know we were especially Graham and I because because we're much more in that tradition of you know, listening to albums. Like Bruce famously always says he doesn't consume music. Uh, that's a typically Bruce kind of thing to say, which is to, uh, to annoy interviewers and put, give, take the high ground in almost any discussion. Rob is not also a great listener to of albums, you know. So, that, so that's, although Graham and I might not agree on, on lots of things, in, in some ways we have that similar kind of background of knowing albums and bands and knowing albums that we like and, and very often agreeing to liking the same albums by the same artist and not, you know, liking the earlier things and not liking, you know, all those kind of things, you know. So, yeah, for sure, that was... that. that I don't think that was unusual. I think, I think that was, by that point, a currency that existed amongst people who were consciously... Because we, we, we were not only creative, but we were also consumers we had been part of that culture that culture had been in us and we had been part of it up to the point we started creating we just built another layer for ourselves on what else what was existing already so with all this though you know complicated time complicated record uh, you still do get a classic out of this i mean when we look at the song the 15th now that's that's become a classic i mean it's been covered by so many artists is that something that's also happened you know Sort of retroactively, uh, you know, looking back on that, or was that something special from the beginning uh, 15th, for you? Fifteenth has had a very strange history. That that's simply because it was it was a it was a song which I I wrote the the text and the music, so it was kind of seen as being my song. Uh, Bruce didn't play on it, which meant it couldn't be a single. Whether or not he did it on purpose, or whether he just didn't play on it because he didn't feel like it. I don't know. I mean, I've never really discussed that with him. We did, when we were playing with Margaret in 2008, we brought it into the set. And I remember the very first time we played it uh, in a gig in Rome. And we started playing it. And there was a girl standing at the front of the stage in front of me and her mouth just dropped open. And she just looked up at me like, my God, I never thought to hear that ever. And I almost burst into tears. I was like, geez. And we played it because one of the things we said to Margaret when she joined, what's your favourite one song? And she said the 15th. We have to play the 15th. And it was, it was good because it came from someone outside of the band because 
If I'd have put it forward to play, then it would have been me trying to push my songs. Graham would never suggest playing it because it wasn't something that he was any, he considered himself in any way part of. Rob would not make the suggestion either. So it was, you know, it's, it's an odd song. And to be honest, the one that was written as the single was Matt Ref. Matt Ref I wrote as a single. And it was like a proper band song because it wasn't my text. It was Graham's text. I think Bruce had a hand in the text. But um, it was my tune and Graham's text. When when you say you you wrote it for the single, do you you go into that specifically saying, I need to write something catchy? I need to write a single? this This is about me, really. It's about my relationship with the band in the 70s. I mean, I was... Uh, to use another Beatles sound, yeah, I, I, I'm of a generation that didn't grow up with the albums, not until Sgt. Pepper's anyway. I didn't own any Beatles albums up to Sgt. Pepper's, but I had all of the singles. Singles were really important to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and singles were still important in the 70s, doing great singles. And I prided myself on supplying Wire with singles. So everybody could be as weird as they wanted to be, but we always had singles. Mm-hmm. That seemed to me like that was a guarantee that we could make a success of the band and have a and have a broad set of material, which is kind of what everybody likes. It's not like nobody likes in the in the band besides me likes singles. I don't think anyone would have been able to write a single also, but certainly you know there were there were songs that I, I knew. I mean, I knew when I'd written Outdoor Minor. I mean, it should have been an enormous hit. I mean. It's, reasons why it wasn't who knows but i mean i knew as soon as it was written that this was a classic single in some kind of vein had it been released 10 years earlier it might have been. <laughs> but um you know it was it, it's uh it's a piece of british psychedelic pop you know matt reference is a slightly different thing but i mean it's got all of the things that you need for a single as far as as far as i was concerned at that point so the 15th was just this strange kind of this is a, it's got an odd odd set of chord changes that would mean it's not obviously a single because of the, the harmonic movement uh it's just the way it worked out and made it more singlish uh because of the attention the attention given to the music uh, that was a that was a mic thing and it, was a, and it was actually one of the best things he brought to wire and that was his one of his concepts, which I still hold to. You work on every track as if it's the single, because there was this. There's been it's true in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, every decade. You know, when especially where there's been singles or top tracks. You know, like you have these days, albums consisting of one or two tracks that everybody knows, been played on the radio lots, and have been worked to death, and a bunch of other stuff that fills it out. And we always wanted to make albums. And the way to guarantee that they were really albums was to work on every track like it was a single. That doesn't mean to say make it the most pop, but make it the most finished. Yeah. And I'll, I'll cheat a little bit on our timeline by, by saying that, you know, your most recent records are still so catchy in the way that you're talking about like you haven't lost that i mean i i will still go back to nocturnal koreans you know the the title track there and and just get lost in that song every time as if it were an anthem and because it is well you've got you've got until january next year before the next one drops and um my gut feeling is it's possibly the best one like i don't know about ever but certainly the best one in the last 
20 years. That's saying a lot right there because it's pretty stiff competition. Well, it is, I know. Yeah. I, I know, if you, you know. To anyone who's a fan, they know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I, we have quite a strong belief in it. I, I think this, I think... I mean, Nocturnal Koreans is, you know, just as an, as an aside, Nocturnal Koreans is in many ways a triumph of, um, of production over songwriting. There are a few, few catchy tunes on it, but it's not really memorable for the songwriting. It's memorable for the fact that it's put together in a really interesting way. I think probably Silver Lead is a bit strong from the songwriting, but I think that the new album, which is at the moment just called the 2020 album, is the strongest in terms of the songs but um, I, I also feel like I'm stepping up a gear in terms of the production as well, uh, just to take it somewhere else. I mean, I, let's see. It turns out I could be completely wrong. But I, I, there's a there's a belief in the band that this is a very strong record. I mean, I believe you just based. I mean, because artists, I love a lot of artists who who are you know have been around for decades, and and, and I still connect to their music, and I still love it. I, I wouldn't always say it's their strongest material in comparison. I, without a doubt, think that what you all are doing right now has been your strongest material, and I say that still as a fan of the old stuff as well. I mean, it's it's sort of mind blowing what you've been able to pull off, you know, this decade. Well, I think that's that's to do with hunger and ambition. You know, why is you know, as I've been quoted many times, the most famous band you've never heard of. <laughs> we've never really been what you would call successful, but we've never been also what you would call unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. We've been somewhere in, somewhere in between. Maybe we have the status that David Bowie always wanted, which is to be a kind of under, underground call, but certainly enough records to live. Right. <laughs> Nobody wants to be un- no one wants to be underground and cool and poor. That's not the, that's that's never the aim, apart from Bruce. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'm going to um, use no, the... that. That that was that was completely unfair and should be taken <laughs> only as a joke. Okay. I, I'm actually going to use what you just said there, not the Bruce part. You're talking about you know sort of being the underground success because um, I'll, I'll use that. So now we're going to turn the clocks to to 1989, and, and that's when uh, Ibtala comes out. It's beginning to and back again. You know the full title of that because you know most bands they get sort of a uh, a decade of attention of success if they're successful in any certain you you sort of get a decade before your audience drifts and and goes you all were able to flip that around because you took some of that decade off so so going into this next you know trilogy of records if we're going to go there it kind of gives it in in a whole new context to me like what was 1989 like for you all did you feel did you still feel the strong pull of the of the same fan base it was the 80s was very different to the 70s. I mean, even with 154 being a famously difficult record to make, it was still, in a way, how Bruce would say, it was done in all innocence. I mean, we would, everyone was, you know, there were, there were strong opinions about what people wanted to do and about how what people wanted to do it. But it wasn't like, yeah, you're an arsehole, you know. I don't, I don't want to be in the same room as you. It was like, oh, no, I want to do this idea because this idea is important and that's what I believe in. You know, it was on on that kind of level. It was never argued, It was, but it was there in the air. The ideal copy was just horrendous. It was, you know, so what had happened in between the 70s and the 80s was that Wire had gone global. Unlike what happens with a lot of groups is they stop making records and they and they disappear. Why did something more like what the Beatles have done in the years since they broke up? But the audience just grew when we weren't around, when nobody was nobody was pushing those records, nobody was promoting them. But the audience just grew bigger. 
are more interested. And in a way, we had to deal with the fact that we were suddenly that band rather than our band. We'd, been rec- we'd almost been recreated in a different light. It's a, it's a, it's a very, I've never said that, but it seems to me that that was part of the issue that we were dealing with. There was, by that point, so much ambition going into it because the ambition was like, we've got to, we've got to appear to be ahead of the game. Mm. It's, that's really hard to do. From a standing start, not having really been involved in, in music at that end of the business for quite a few years, uh, uh, almost an impossible, uh, almost an impossible ask. And, you know, the Ideal Copy was famously the most difficult band uh, record that the Wire ever made. It was a very, very difficult record to make. And one which, you know, I can in some ways look at, you know, there are things I, I, I don't love on 154, but I can see from a point of view, because I've been sold, told by so many people who love it, you know, what a great record it is, that it is a great record. And, you know, I have to get beyond my feeling feelings about how, you know, how the sessions felt and learn to just enjoy it for what it is. With the ideal copy, that's much, much more difficult because there was, to quote Brian Grant, who was our manager at the time, there was blood on the walls. Mm. It was absolutely horrible. It was, I mean, I left. I mean, it was just, it was too much. It was not, it was also not, it wasn't, we weren't really making a record together. We were doing something different that was, that we didn't really understand how to do. And it wasn't really working out because everybody had very, very different ideas about how we were supposed to do what we were trying to do. What was the kind of the sort of the next step was a sort of healing thing of like, right, let's try and make a record in a different way. And that was about as a cup, mm-hmm. which was generally at the time more favorably received than the ideal copy. It's more of a band sounding record, although there's quite a lot of artifice about how it was created. But the defining moment in some ways of a bell is a cup was Bruce's remark as we did the last mix, which was uh, not a major contribution to Western culture, um, which classic Bruce Downer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it sort of set the template, you see, because I got persuaded to come back to the band on the basis that I would have more say on a bell is a cup. So it sort of became my, in quotes, album. It wasn't my album. It was a Wire album, but still. I had more idea about the direction it should be going. So therefore, it was decided that Bruce needed a record. Mm. The next record should be Bruce should set the direction of. So Bruce decided that what we should do, and this is the actual Ibtabra as opposed to the, the version with, with the extra tracks, was that we should take a live performance from Chicago strip off everything apart from the drums and the vocals and replay the melodic content against the voice. It was like a band doing a remix. Mm. It was quite an interesting idea, although, of course, it didn't necessarily improve the tracks. It occurred at a very, very strange time because uh, we started recording it in uh, November 1988. I know it was November 1988, and we did it in Brussels because my son Ben had just been born, and Ben was tiny. And the first night of the session, we met up together when they kind of arrived, when they all arrived the night before. And Bruce decided we needed to wet the baby's head. So suddenly we were drinking vodka and champagne, and I got extremely... 
extremely drunk. And a classic, it was a classic, like, you couldn't make it up, really. This is why it's most ridiculous in a way. So I could barely stand up. So they sort of carried me to my place, rang the door and all ran away. <laughs> and Malka came down and she was absolutely livid. You know, I'd gone out perfectly human and come back completely incapable <laughs> You know, and they'd all buggered off and left me there. Classic bit of wire history. I mean, it was it was kind of, in hindsight, it's really funny, but um, it's very funny, uh, by the way, to me at least, who didn't have to deal with that moment. I mean, you 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 have to remember. I mean, you know, there is. It's hard to remember stuff in the seventies, but the seventies. I mean, well, I was extremely silly a lot of the time, I and mean, we had we spent a lot of time together, and a lot of that time was spent making each other laugh. You know, that was one of its great endearments to us. So one of the things that made the ideal copy so little fun was it was just no, nobody was laughing at anything. It was all desperate. At least we had fun when we, when we made um, uh, A Bell is a Cup. It was a classic story. It's probably in the books, but uh, Daniel came over to see how the sessions were going. And Daniel's message to us at the beginning of the, of the album was Think Pop. Uh, and he knew we were going to do a version of Kidney Bingo's. Uh, Graham had, had bought her some ridiculous furry sock puppet who he nicknamed the Pope of Pop. <laughs> and then him and Bruce had shot the most ridiculous homemade video which, with this love puppet dancing around to kidney bingos with really bad effects on it. <laughs> and we had, you know, so Daniel had come to the sessions expecting, you know, that it could be as bad as what had happened on, on the ideal copy. And, um, and Graham said, oh, I've got the video for uh, for uh, Kidney Bingo's. Do you want to see it? Oh, yeah, I've got the video already. All right, definitely thinking pop. And so there appears on, on on the TV this ridiculous glove puppet bouncing around <laughs> to Kidney Bingo's. And everybody, of course, burst out laughing. But, you know, there's a bit of classic wire humour. I mean, um, I mean, it, it Tabble was... I, I, there was very little to remember about it because it was all over very, very quickly. I mean, it was all done. It had to be done around me because uh, literally I'd just become a dad and I, I couldn't leave home. So it was kind of done and dusted. It was a simple idea. We did it. We delivered it. And Mute said, well, that's not an album, really. You need to do some more things. Then where's, where's the single? And um, so we, we had another session with a guy called Rico Conning, who did in London. We recorded three songs. Idron Buzz, In Vivo, and The Offer. And um, these were like, you know, we need to have a single. So we recorded them together, and then Rico did some mixes. And then Dan phoned me up and said, um, Daniel Miller, sorry, Dan, um, what do you think of the mixes? And See, I thought I thought In Vivo was the single. I said, I hate the mix. I see, hated it. It's just turned into Acid House, you know. This is not that. That's not. It's it's dance pop. You know, where's the pop? And uh, he said, "Oh, don't worry about that. That we want Adrian Buzz's single." And I said, "Oh, yeah, that's all right." <laughs> so, so Adrian Buzz came out with the single, and then um, Gilles Martin, who I was working with at the time, and I mixed uh, in vivo for the single version, which came out afterwards. No, uh, Adrian Buzz was pretty got a lot of MTV. I mean, it's it's um, your biggest charting single in the u.s uh, i believe to this date right Quite possibly and that's that's wholly down to mtv 
And, um, the, and not a sock puppet on MTV. I'm <laughs> not a sock puppet. Not a sock puppet. No, not at all. There's, there's a very. It was a. It was a kind of an interesting period because we were. We were engaged with the machine. And as part of the thing was, like, with EMI, we refused to engage with the machine because we didn't like them. There wasn't really anybody there we liked that much, apart from Mike. Whereas, you know, when we were on mute, I mean, it's Dan. Dan says you need a single. Oh, God, Dan says we need to do a single. We better do a single then. You know, it was kind of like that. In fact, Dan was the main re you know, apart from, the you know, the proffered direction for Abel is a Cup, Dan was the main reason why I came back after I left. You know, Bruce said to me, you can't do it to Dan. You could do that to EMI, but you can't do it to Dan. You, you, you know, we have to promote the record. And so, I, you know, I can't, you know, I, I couldn't be like that. I couldn't be that person that would just be so uncaring about someone that we liked who had invested quite a lot of money in the band. That, that 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 seemed wrong to me. So it, my, my conscience was like, well, like, you know, then then I should do this. But you know, let's let's try and set some rules about how we do this. And it, there is something very typical about a bunch of blokes, especially British blokes, who never who like making each other laugh, but never talk about anything serious. <laughs> you know, I mean, Beatles. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it's. It, it's you know I, just because I've read so much about them, you know that that's you know I see myself in those pe- in those people. I, that's not I'm sure many other people do as well. That's that is kind of the way it is. I mean, even now getting the band to talk about anything seriously, it's hard. We've got better at it. I mean, we've definitely got better at it, and we we do have meetings now. I mean, the idea of having a meeting in the 70s or 80s would seem <laughs> preposterous. You know. They would be going down the pub, but that's not a meeting. That's going down the pub, and that's some people getting horribly drunk. That's not discussing anything that you should be talking about. Right. Yeah, I'm not talking necessarily about the emotional stuff or about relationships, about things, but even even stuff that you need to talk about is about what you know. It's not like when you take a decision about where you're going or what you're doing and how you're going to do something. These aren't preordained things. They're, they're, they're discussion. What do you prefer? Would you, would you prefer to do it like this? Would you do it like this? Or what do you think? You know, I mean, that even that didn't really exist in why in the eighties. I mean, what tended to happen was uh, Brian and Bruce would go down the pub, and Bruce would just basically tell him what needed to be done, and then the rest of us would find out afterwards. I mean, which was. Not exactly a great way of doing things, but I mean, Bruce is Bruce. Is, you know, I'm not blaming Bruce. Bruce is his own particular person, and he, he, his belief in it and his wanting to carry it forward. I mean, he was the the oldest member and also the gang leader, so he probably felt that he had a right to do that. Well, I'll um, I want to spin the dial just a little bit here because. Uh... So the Beatles break up, and out of that you get Wings. Uh, I, I want to bring up Immersion and, and Gidhead just a little bit because they, they both uh, also just happen to have albums that are big round anniversaries, and we don't have to touch on it as heavy as we, we are here with Wire. But uh, but that's what I mean. So Wire, you all had put out an album every single year once you got back together through the 80s, right into the 90s, up until, what, 91, I think I'm looking at right here with the, with the, the drill is what I see as the last one. 
And then... Uh, was there? Yeah, no, I think the WIR album came after that, but... Okay. Yeah. Well, either way, and then then immersion happens, and, it, you know, this is probably... It feels like this is probably an important moment for you personally to do something. I mean, you've done your solo record, it's stuff like that, but this feels like something completely different. Oscillating came out in 94, that's 25 years old. Low Impact came out in 99, that's 20 years old. Sleepless came out last year, and that was one of my favorite albums of the year. Oh, thank you very much. Absolutely loved it. What brought this project back, and, and what's the importance to it now in your life? Well, the relationship between between Get Head and Immersion is, in a way, sort of quite important because Get Head became very frustrating to do. And when Mark and I moved to Brighton in 2014, we took two decisions. One was that we couldn't keep going on on Get Head like we were doing because it was just it just it would became like pushing a rock up a hill to get things done and to get the attention to to have you know a full band on the road and never make any money and you know dealing with Robin's schedule became it all just became impossible so we thought okay we want to do something that just we can do just Malka and I it's like obvious well why don't we do immersion I mean. Uh, going back to electronic music seemed sensible and logical. It just, you know, typically there has been quite a strong resurgence in electronic music over the last few years. It was something that we felt close to and wanted to do and seemed like the appropriate time to do it. So um, actually, well, the, the first was, was um, my brain just softened, um, analog creatures, um, which was the first ten inch, which was the kind of the thing that we sort of in brackets or in quotes came back with. I mean, we weren't expecting anything. We didn't think anyone would have remembered immersion. I mean, immersion reached a kind of high water at the end of the nineties with low impact. We didn't play a lot of gigs in the nineties, but we did play the Royal Festival Hall with with Wire in nineteen ninety nine. That was that was a low impact show, um, and that was quite amazing to do it in such a big space and uh obviously the uh, the other thing that was important with immersion coming back is that we can and do play live and we did an american tour last year which was quite a big deal to have to have achieved to have got round and it was uh, it was an an amazing experience as well it was it was something that couldn't be done with wire because for wire to do a similar tour would be six to eight weeks and wire never wants to be on the road that long Mm -hmm. That's why we always have to do America in a kind of special way, because the logical way to do it, the only way immersion could do it was to drive the whole thing. There was, there was no other way of doing it. It would have been horrendously expensive to do it any other way. So we drove coast to coast. Well, I, I've never driven coast to coast in America. I mean, and uh, people always talk about out west, you know, the amazing looking part of the country, you know. Um, and it's it was it was a fantastic experience, you know. But the plan is we've got two, uh, two potential, two ideas we can work on with emotion. We, we've been doing this series of events in Brighton called Nana Cluster, which are collaborations, and we've been recording them. So we we've done, we've worked with uh, the German duo Tarwater, who we've known for years, um, with Letitia Sadier from Stereo Lab, and with Ulrich Schnauss, the German electronic musician, and. Um, uh, we've got recorded tracks with them, and that would be a record to finish. 
There's also something we recorded, um, Matt Schultz uh, from Holy Fuck, who did part of the tour with us last year, um, was on tour in Britain last year and kind of passed by Brighton and we just jumped in to a local studio and just jammed, um, recorded a bunch of stuff and that might get built up into a record and we've even spoken to Ulrich about doing something, including having him included in that material because Ulrich is someone we get on with really well. So that might be where the next direction of immersion comes from or we can just decide if that, none of that really floats our boat. We can just start with new material. I mean, it's, it's in one level incredibly easy to do. It's just the two of us. We work very easily together. We're married, you know. It's uh, it, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's always it always works, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a great thing. And you know, I I personally do write Sleepless. I think Sleepless is a really good record. Uh, I'm always surprised by how well it turned out, and I think it sets a bench benchmark. And whatever comes out next has to be better than that. That's that's how, that's. That's that's where I am right now. That's why I'm thinking like I'm thinking about wire. Putting myself under pressure in a good way, not in an, you know. I mean, that doesn't mean to say that in, in any way I am responsible for all of the music on these things. That's, it's not even slightly true. What I do is I, I seem to have an ability to finish things. And that is, it's a, it's a skill that most musicians don't have. They don't really know how to finish stuff. I discovered this actually. I discovered this with Bruce when we were making Send. We would work on things together, and we would work really closely. And then when he'd done all the things he wanted to do, and he'd heard everything I suggested, he would just lose interest. I'd say, "But it's not finished, Bruce. It's got to be mixed." And he'd just sort of look at me like, "Yes, yeah, so what?" <laughs> so I, just, I just started mixing. That's that's how I started mixing why because you know, Bruce didn't obviously appear to have that much interest in it, as long as. What and, and that's still the, the complete rule uh, for for me mixing wire. I mean, as long as everybody can hear everything that they contributed to it, they're completely happy if it turns out sounding good. You know, mm. it's not like I'm doing some kind of thing which obscures what you know. It, it, I try for high transparency. There's no point in having something in a mix if it's not contributing something. So hear everything, and if it doesn't work, change it. To make it so it does work, you know. But that's that's also done in the construction between us as a band. So there's, you know, I, I I never ever want to overclaim what I do, but I do seem to have acquired the ability to mix things, which I, I'm pleased about. And, and as for Gethead, I'm not sure if there ever will. But we we did have one person who came up to us on the immersion tour who was really angry that we're not making any more, or we don't appear to be making any more Gethead records. Well, landing uh, landing on its tenth anniversary that. That's a great record, too. I think I've complimented you on just about everything today, so here's just one more for the pile. But uh, but that Landing record was a really great album. Landing so. landing, landing is a great record. It's interesting that you chose chosen Landing rather than waiting for a sign, although I, I would speak up for Art Pop. I think Art Pop's got some, I mean, some classic tracks on it. Art Pop was a, was a very, was, was very much trying to push it the envelope of it as far as we could go with it to make you know like it was a pop rock statement and uh, uh it's got some great moments on it landing i i haven't listened to for a while i haven't listened to any of them for a while um landing has certainly has I, I always associate that with the death of malka's father which happened just about when we were finishing it mm. i 
think it was when it, when it happened. I'm not sure, but it's one of those things like how the, how those how life gets right. kind of delineated out. Was it was definitely it was I think I, I think waiting for sign was something where where I where we took a huge risk. I mean, we booked uh, four days in Rockfield and with no material at all. I just I mean, Rockfield is uh, you know, I, I'm you know we, I've done a lot of recording there, so we can get. A pref, you know, a preferential rate, but they don't give it away. You know, we, that was um, um, we didn't have a lot of money at that point. So it was like <laughs> it, was a, it was a big risk, but you know, I, it was it, it's one I, I'd love to do that again with a different project actually, because I think that's a and it's, that's a very very ambitious thing to do, and I, I quite like I quite like the idea of of being so reckless. Well, I'm certainly a fan of uh, of every one of these things, and. Um... And I'm going to use that as as you say you have the talent for finishing things. I'm going to take this moment to uh, to draw our own uh, conversation here to an end, as well. Um, I completely appreciate uh, all the time today, and, and thank you so much for uh, you know kind of pulling the curtains back on every one of these albums. Well, that's, that, thanks for. I would get to play Louisville on the next tour. I would absolutely love that. I know you've. We didn't. We didn't get back last time. I, I think we. The first time in Louisville was 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 an incredibly memorable experience because it's the, I mean Louisville doesn't really count as the South, but it's the beginning of the South. Right, right. And yeah, it depends on your viewpoint. You know, for some people it's the Midwest, and so for some people it's the, you know the beginning of the South. And it's we just have never played played anywhere in that area before, so it was kind of it felt like a a, a big step. And then we sort of came back, and it didn't feel so exciting going the second time because <laughs> they'd already seen it once, so therefore we still aren't dead yet, you know. So <laughs> there we go. So uh, yeah, look, I, but Louisville's got a, a good, good little scene happening there, um, and uh, various people have talked. I mean, Botch from our agent has, has really say about Louisville, but even like. This is like a city. People are moving there as a place where mm-hmm. it's kind of a cool place to live. Is that? Did I get that right? It is right, and you can tell by how many hotels suddenly start going up in an area. You start, you know, looking at the, how the real estate works and everything. I think some of it has to do because of how suddenly unlivable Nashville has become for a lot of people. You know, and, and Louisville becomes sort of the closest uh, little satellite, which it's always been. I mean, we're. We're two hours from Indianapolis, an hour and a half from Cincinnati, uh, two and a half hours from Nashville. And, and if you want to go the other direction, we're only four hours from uh, St. Louis and five from Chicago. It's very centrally located with a lot of these places around here. Uh, and I think that has um, – but it, it's also it's – that, it's that whole small-town feel in a big city. You know, it's still a metropolis. You know, there are millions of people here and everything. But, uh, but, but you still kind of get that neighborhood feel wherever you live in the town, and I think that's really appealing. And, and the music does really well here. I mean, we've got a lot of clubs. Uh, we typically have uh, an artist that, um, you know, gets some sort of national and international notoriety every two or three years, you know, and so that, that – always kind of helps with the art scene as well and and you know and of course there's just been so many very famous people who have came from here in the past so it kind of keeps us in the um in the national conversation whether it being ali or hunter thompson or the kentucky derby which just happened and you know whatever so yeah it's there's your sales yeah, pitch I mean, it's, 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 it's uh, we, we we have a we, i think wire have a have a fondness for louisville and, and you know note 
I did not once say Louisville. No, you did it right. You did it very right, actually. So well done. Yeah, because because well, that was the first, first thing you learn when you walk in the door. Say the name right. You know, <laughs> don't disrespect the people. You know, and say their name wrong to think that you're you know some superior person. You know, we, we don't like it when people say Leicester. You know, so right. you know you you say. You say the uh, you say the name of the city like it like it should be pronounced and um, yeah it's good um, we did the, the, the first promoter he never followed through said he was going to FedEx us like this because um, uh, it's a FedEx centre isn't there at the airport mm, yeah but did the FedEx us local local bourbon because <laughs> he I remember we were we were we, oh, God, I don't drink bourbon anymore but uh, we we had a little thing of 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 drinking uh, Matt and I sort of thing of drinking Maker's Mark and he was like <clears throat> you know that's the cause light of Right. Bourbon, you know, <laughs> I think I think for people in Britain, you know, I mean, if they've discovered Maker's Mark, they've already got a long way into bourbon, you know. So, uh, you know, to be able to to buy, you know, kind of local, locally brewed stuff, mm-hmm. you know, it's pretty going to be pretty rare here, you know. But still, so. yeah. Well, no, no, give all give all my best, Louisville. I've got no idea how the routing will will come out. I mean, we are discussing various options. Yeah, if you drop by here, we'd love to have you. Cool. Well, nice to speak to you, and um, uh, enjoy the rest of your day. All right, you too. Thank you so much, Colin. We'll uh, we'll see you around. All right, cheers. All right, take care. Oh, my huge thanks to Colin Newman of Wire. That was a geek dream right there, I promise you. Hey, before you get out of here, uh, please uh, do me a favor and hit the subscribe button. We'd love to keep you up to date on all of the interviews. We put them out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at Consequence of Sound. And again, you can get it wherever you get your favorite podcasts from, including iTunes and Apple Podcasts. And I really do hope that you give this series a rating, maybe leave a review as well. You can also subscribe on YouTube if you're over there a little bit more often or uh, follow us on Spotify. We've got the series up there as well. After that, you can head to WFPK.org, where I do a show every Monday through Thursday from noon to 3 Eastern, where you can also find some bonus episodes of this series. Consequenceofsound.net, they've got your music and film news. You can find me at Twitter, at Kyle Meredith, and Facebook, slash Kyle Meredith. And that does it for another edition. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.